Hey, Reach Paramount, welcome to our podcast. Hey, this message is from our Sunday morning service with evangelist David Diga Hernandez in a message that explains the gospel. Enjoy this message. Amen. You can all be seated. I'm going to deviate from the theme here. Now, every month this church does a theme and as I preach here, it seems now like monthly that I've been preaching here on Sunday, which I love. So thank you for the honor and the privilege. I can't believe you guys put up with me that often. That's a, that's a real, real um, pleasure to be here. Um, but, you know, each month we have a theme, and I, I always want to make sure to honor, respect that theme. But I did speak with the pastors, and, and something I just wanted to share something a little different. And, you know, sometimes I preach, sometimes also I teach. And this morning I want to do a teaching and I want to teach you how to explain the gospel to your loved ones. Because I think this is a real important season because I believe there are many open doors for the gospel and for soul winning. And I think that as the church, we need to come back to the place where soul winning is a priority. It doesn't have to be the only thing that we do. There are many expressions of the church and ministries, but it should be a main thing that we do, that's soul winning and reaching out to others. You know, I believe in healing, but what good does it do to pray for healing in someone's body without ministering salvation to their soul? I believe in deliverance, casting out devils. What good does it do to cast out someone's one demon if they go to hell with all of them? I believe in prophecy, but what good does it do to reveal someone's future if that future never at any point includes heaven? And our charity, our good work, and what we do for society and for the community, this is all good, but what good does it do to feed a man today who goes to hell tomorrow? So in all of our good works, in all of our demonstrations of power, in all of being the church, we have to remember that it's vital that we be soul winners. And so, you know, as believers, we have this genuine concern for the non-believer. As believers, we have this desire that the Holy Spirit put inside each and every one of us to see the unbeliever come to the cross, true repentance. And if there are going to be true conversions, they must be receiving a true gospel. Because a false gospel will always result in a false conversion. And so we've been, we've been gifted as stewards of this message, people who carry the truth, and we should not hold back that truth. I understand there are introverts and there are extroverts. I'm not talking about personality type, and I'm not saying that everyone has to go stand at the street corner and start preaching on a bullhorn if you want to be a true evangelist. That's one form of evangelism. I'll show you the different types of evangelism in a moment. Um, but, you know, I think we do have the responsibility. Paul the Apostle wrote, woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. And I think you and I have that same call, that same responsibility that's been placed on us to communicate the message of salvation, the most important message of all time. So the different kinds of evangelism that you'll see expressed in Scripture, we see, number one, in Acts chapter 2, confrontational evangelism. And this is that evangelism with the open-air preachers. And these are the ones who often get a lot of criticism. You know, God uses everyone from the street preacher to Joel Osteen. Now, I know there's a lot of talk about people saying, well, Joel Osteen waters it down and he doesn't preach the true gospel. 
And this is coming from people who've actually never heard him preach the gospel. And just listened to clips and then watched it broken down by some YouTube guy who wants a lot of clicks on his videos. And so he takes a portion of someone else's sermon, twists their words, takes it out of context and makes it seem like he's watering things down. Now, I'm not the Joel Osteen defender, but I think we as the church have to stop being so critical of men and women of God just because they don't concentrate on all the points that we want them to concentrate on. The Bible says if a man's gift is to encourage, let him encourage. Well, doesn't the man encourage? Now, the reason I mention him is only for the sake of an illustration. I'm not here to preach on why Joel Osteen is a man of God. I'm here to say, you know, but, but it, we get into almost these conspiracy theory type mindsets. Like, oh, there's, there's a wolf. Got to be careful, you know. And, and what Jesus said, if they're, they're not against us, they're for us. And, and the scripture is full of references on how to tell false preachers from real preachers. And the primary way to tell is whether or not they're preaching Jesus. And everything else is secondary, okay? So maybe you don't believe that God wants his children blessed in the sense that some people teach blessing. Okay, don't we agree on the gospel? Maybe you don't believe in miracles the way some pre people preach miracles. Okay, that's fine. Don't we all agree on the gospel? And so if you look at confrontational evangelists, you see an example of this, as I said, in Acts 2, where Peter is just proclaiming this message, confronting the people and their sin, and that is open-air, confrontational, street preaching. And you've seen that, as I said, people with the bullhorns. And so in the same way, I don't criticize the Joel Osteens. He's not my servant. He's God's. I also don't criticize the street preacher. See, people say, well, Joel Osteen's too nice. The street preacher's too mean. Well, wait a minute. God sent them both. And when someone stands before God, he'll be able to say, I sent everyone from the Joel Osteens to the street preachers. You're without excuse. So we have this tendency to criticize methodology when we should be looking at the message. What is the message being preached? And again, I'm, I, I, you, will find, you will find something you disagree with with everyone. It doesn't matter who they are. It doesn't matter what their style of ministry is. You will find something you disagree with someone on. So that's why it has to come back to the fundamental of the gospel. Do we agree on the gospel? And if we agree on the gospel, we're doing the same work. So you'll see confrontational evangelism. And that's Acts 2, as I said. Then this is probably the most effective form of evangelism next to the one I'm going to give you in, in the third place. The, probably the most effective form of evangelism is relational evangelism. And this is the sharing of the gospel with individuals that we know. Think of Jesus with the woman at the well. This one-on-one -on -one sharing of the truth, the gospel message, is probably the most effective way. You know, they say that most people in America don't attend church. And of, of this group of people who do not attend church, most of them would attend church were a friend to invite them or a family member to invite them to church. And it's not just about inviting people to church. It's about ministering the gospel to them, but at least seeds can be planted in that sense. And then we have relationships that God has given us the responsibility over. When you win someone to the Lord, there's nothing like it. I'm telling you, there's nothing like winning someone to the Lord and, and seeing them repent of their sins, receive forgiveness from those sins, and then receive the free gift of salvation to watch them transform right before your very eyes. That's a beautiful thing. 
And many of us are passing these opportunities on a daily basis simply because we're too busy or we're too shy. Or maybe it's just something that we don't even really think about. But relational evangelism is the most powerful form because there are people that you can reach that I definitely can't. We all come from different backgrounds. We all have different cultures. We all communicate with different people. And this isn't to say that the gospel can't pierce the heart of anyone no matter who preaches it. This just means that developing relationships with people, which is an effective means of evangelism, is the responsibility of the believer. And we must connect with the non-believer, not in the sense that they have influence over us, but in the sense that we're able to be close enough to make an impact. And that's something we all should be practicing. Next, we see organizational evangelism. You know, I do miracle services all around the world. And sometimes you will watch the live streams, you'll watch the videos, you'll see the altar calls pack out with people, people getting saved, and that's beautiful. But you know, even though I'm in an evangelistic ministry, I still acknowledge that the most effective form of ministry evangelism is the local church. That's a fact. And, and, and we're talking, put, put together the biggest crusades of the biggest evangelists in the world, and it still pales in comparison to how many souls are won every week in the collective of the worldwide local church. And so this is something that we get to be a part of. This is something we get to give our lives to. The local church is another form of evangelism. So this idea of criticizing those who win souls in church is just, it's a form of religious pride is what it is. This idea of, well, you know, you're over there in the four walls of the church and I'm over here doing it the real way outside the four walls. And you're all, well, that's just spiritual pride. Because the, the local church is the primary way that people come to the Lord. And so there are different methods, as I said. But to try to elevate any one method over another, that is, that's the spirit really of a Pharisee. To criticize another man's operation when they're not your servant, they're God's. And so we have to be rid of this idea that the only real ministry, the only real church is outside the four walls. Well, that's just nonsense because the Bible very clearly teaches that we are not the church until we gather together. And so there is a power in organizational evangelism. I've heard people say all the time, well, I just don't want to be a part of organized religion. And I say, do you want to be a part of disorganized religion? Do you prefer chaotic religion? Do you prefer something that's out of order? I challenge anyone to name me something that God has ever done that didn't have a system to it. Solar system, ecosystem, your body consists of many systems. God is a God of order and his church is no different. So if you don't like systems, you don't like God's way of doing things. So the local church is a major part of global evangelism. All of us have a role to play in the local church. And then, of course, there's supernatural evangelism. This is ministering through the gift of prophecy, casting out devils, praying for the sick, which is something I believe that we should have being expressed in all forms of evangelism. So we need the street preachers. We need the everyday believer ministering one-on-one -on -one to that coworker, to that friend, to that family member. We need the church as a whole, as an organization, advancing the kingdom work. And then we need supernatural evangelism. We see a reference to this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 4. And then for organizational evangelism, that was Acts uh, 2.47, where many were added to their fellowship. Now, how do you explain the gospel? Well, I'm going to break it down for you real simply. 
There are three phases to the gospel message. Whenever I travel to a nation or to a state or to a region to communicate the gospel message to a people group, it doesn't matter if I'm in the small islands of Pompeii in Micronesia or if I'm ministering in Europe or if I'm ministering right here in the U.S. of A. The gospel works. There's no need to change the message. The gospel is God's message to humanity. Jesus is God's gift to the world. So the gospel message, though it can vary in the delivery by methodology, at its core must remain intact. The message must remain the message. So if you want to know how to share the gospel message, I'm going to break it down for you in three phases. And then you're going to practice this on your loved ones. You're going to share this with your friends and family, and you're going to do it lovingly. Okay. Three phases, and I'm going to tell you the three phases, and then how I've noticed people react to the three phases. Phase number one is the diagnosis. Phase number two is the presentation of the cure. Phase number three is the challenge to a response. And really, that's it. And I'm going to break down these as best I can. And I think I, I, think I have, actually, it's plenty of time. 28 minutes, that's perfect. Okay, usually I do these in 12-minute videos, so this is plenty of time. Um, I feel like I, I can actually take my time now. Beautiful. But I'll try to pack in as much as possible. So, so diagnosis, the presentation of the cure, the challenge to a response. So number one, diagnosis. This is where people get offended because this is where they first come to know that they have a problem. Now, there's a mistake that we make when we tell people, come to Jesus and all of your troubles will go away. Come to Jesus and everything in your life will be fixed, made perfectly whole. Come to Jesus and everything that ails you will be removed. Everything that troubles you will be defeated. All of the chaos will be instantaneously gone. Every character flaw perfectly ironed out. And this promise of blessing in exchange for the soul results in one of two things. Either the person will experience those things because God is sovereign. And there are times, I don't know if you've ever seen it, sometimes a new convert comes in off the street and within six months they're making more money than you. They're doing better in ministry. They, got, you know, they, they came off of drugs six months ago and now they're... Now they're a millionaire. You know, you've seen it happen sometimes where the newcomer just has this fast track to destiny. It seems like they're... But you've got to remember to go at the pace of grace. God has a different strategy and a different story for every individual. So to tell someone something like, you know, come to Jesus because God has a wonderful plan for your life. Well, I don't think that would have worked in the early church. You see, a good test for whether or not you're preaching a genuine gospel is asking yourself, would this message work for any people group at any time in any situation? Because you tell that to the people in the early church and you say, oh, God's going to bless you. He's going to put all these wonderful things. And then, and, then, and then they die in their early 20s because they were martyred. Had they thought that was the message, they would have been disillusioned. They would have accused you of lying to them and then it would have killed the revival that God was doing in that time. But the proper diagnosis here is what ultimately leads to the proper solution. So the diagnosis is simple. The scripture gives it to us when it tells us that all have sinned. 
None righteous, no, not one. And people don't like this because A, they have to acknowledge that there's such a thing as a holy standard, which these days you even mention a holy standard and they'll, 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 they'll reach to cancel you. They'll call you a bigot. And then to tell them that they've violated that standard, well, that's going to upset them. So this is why we're not to be antagonistic with this. Look, just like a doctor doesn't take joy when he has to tell his patient that he has cancer, so the Christian doesn't take joy in preaching against sin in the sense that they love to make people miserable. I mean, it's the delivery of bad news. Well, what's the good news? The good news is Jesus saves. Well, what is he saved from? He saves us from sin and hell. So before the gospel will set you free, it first might offend you. And it's in this offense that people are turned off to the gospel. You've heard it said that people are so turned off to the gospel because of all the hypocrites. Well, that's just not true. There's hypocrites in anything they participate in. There's hypocrites at their job. There's hypocrites in the movie industry. They don't stop watching movies. There's hypocrites in the sporting world. They don't stop watching sports. There's hypocrites in the workplace. They don't quit their jobs because of it. No, no. People don't leave because of the hypocrites in the church. That's just trying to villainize the church as a whole. And that's something that the culture is doing. It's in vogue right now to criticize the church as a whole and try to paint it in the worst light possible. No, people aren't leaving because of the church. People are leaving because they love sin. Jesus diagnosed it himself in John 3 when he said that they reject the light because they love darkness. So don't worry, you're not that effective at shutting down the gospel. Yeah, you should live holy. Yeah, you should be a good example. But, but the reality is that the diagnosis aspect of this is probably the harshest. And, and you don't have to present it in a mean way. Love is not rude. So when you're telling someone the gospel, you're telling them, you know, hey, this, this is, the, the reality is that the way you're living is not right. And this doesn't mean you're playing the Holy Spirit, which I'll get to in a moment, because some of us try to play the Holy Spirit. We nitpick. And I'll give you more details on this as we progress to the message. But the diagnosis is, is pretty, pretty settled in the scripture. There's none righteous, no, not one. This part offends the self-righteous. But you know what I've found in reality where most people think that would turn people off, I found it only offends the really prideful. Most people, when you tell them there's none righteous, they go, <laughs> yeah, I know. Most people already are aware of the fact by way of their conscience, which is a gift from God, that the way they're living is not according to God's holy standard. Then there's the presentation of the cure. This gives hope to those who know they are sinners. The cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. The self-righteous don't see hope in the gospel because the self-righteous don't see their sin for what it is. They don't see it as a, a, an announcement of good news that, that Christ has taken your punishment, that God gives you a free gift of salvation, that he's willing in his love and his mercy and his grace to overlook your wrongdoing. They don't see that because they see themselves as righteous. And they see the gospel as a crutch that weak-minded people lean on. And this is why the scripture says God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And then we see number three, the challenge to the response. Now this part you have to be careful. Because the gospel is not a product and you are not a salesman. 
The gospel is not something you can force someone to respond to. And in fact, if you try to force them to respond to it, you actually give them opportunities to harden their heart. And in giving them opportunities to harden their heart, you push them further away. So the response is simply, this is what it takes to respond. You tell them how to be saved, and we'll break these down in just a moment. First, we have to know what is the gospel. I think a good summary of the gospel is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. The Bible says, For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Again, that's 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. So this is the gospel summarized. He hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. In other words, God treated Christ as if Christ committed your sins. And that is the simplest way to put it. I like to summarize it this way. Jesus will give you his eternal life in exchange for your temporary one. At the core of the gospel message is an exchange. Your record for Christ's record. Your failures being traded with Christ's accomplishment. Your sin being traded with Christ's holiness. That is the core of the gospel message. Now breaking it down in its phases. Number one, the diagnosis. We come back to this to see that all have sinned. Romans 3.10 says, As the scriptures say, No one is righteous, not even one. Romans 3.23, for everyone has sinned, we all fall short of God's glorious standard. This is why we as the church cannot move the line in the sand. We must call sin, sin, and stop apologizing for it. Let me tell you what happens. It's a progressive decay in society, and it's a progressive decline of moral standards Moral standards are based, of course, on God's standard of holiness. It's our attempt at trying to describe God's holiness. And what happens is, in generation after generation, society pushes back against the idea of a holy standard. And the church holds that standard. But it seems that the further that society goes into darkness, the more they hate the light. And so as society becomes more and more aggressive toward things, the church says, well, maybe we should take just a little step back. Maybe we should make just a slight adjustment. And so you go to some of the moral standards in the nation of back in you know, the early 1900s, late 1800s, and you can watch the progression. And this is not to say that people weren't living in wicked lifestyles in their lives every day. This is just to say that society as a whole, at least they tried to hide it because they knew it was wicked. It wasn't out in the open, in your face, being pushed against you and your kids. And it slowly moves. And then what happens is the church says what it's always been saying. And then society says, oh, see, that's the problem with religion. See, you're, you're keeping us from a happy society. You're keeping us from progressing. You're keeping us from all being one. You're keeping us from accepting and tolerating everyone. And we haven't moved. Well, at least the scripture hasn't. And so in each generation, the church takes just a little bit of a step back. And before you know it, even just hinting at certain things being sin now is equivalent to violence. Equivalent to you attacking. It's equivalent to you spewing vitriol and hate 
Why? Because that standard's being moved. But here we look to the scripture and there is an unmoving, unchanging, holy, eternal standard that declares all have sinned. And this is the great equalizer. Christians don't say, you're a sinner, I'm not. Christians tell of how they were saved from their sin. But if there is to be salvation, there has to be a standard. And if there is no such thing as sin, the cross was unnecessary. Jesus died for nothing. You want to look at how wicked sin truly is? Look at the cross. How badly they beat him, that was the punishment. How harshly they treated him. The agony, the grief, the heaviness that was upon him at his time of death, that is a picture to you and I of what sin results in. All have sinned. There's not one, not one, not one. You could stop sinning now, this moment, and for the rest of your life never commit another sin. And go to church every Sunday, and Bible study every Friday, and work the nursery every Wednesday night. And then you can give all your money away, live a selfless life, be kind, never yell at another person, never think another evil thought, and still that measure of holiness that you've gathered in that later part of your life would still not make up for, not even close to the sin that was committed in the first portion of it. It is, it is, it is an impossibility for man to make up for his sin. It's impossible, it's impossible, it's impossible. That is the finality of the verdict of sin. Sin brings death. Romans 6, 23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Here's a crazy thought. The individual is responsible for their actions. And there are consequences for those actions. Am I saying we never show grace? No. Am I saying we seek revenge and to punish everyone for all the wrongdoing? No, because the Bible says he doesn't deal with us according to our sins. Thank God he doesn't. That's what it says. It says he, you do not deal with us according to our sins. But see how you sense that relief in that moment? It came and you realized how good that is because you recognized the finality of the judgment of sin. All have sinned, that's me, I'm right there with you. And all of us, by comparison, none of us are greater sinners than the other. You might say, how is that possible? Well, if you compare me to you, one of us might be a little more sinful than the other. But if you compare all of us to God, all of us look exactly the same. That's how distant that standard is. So we explain, all have sinned. Sin brings death. That's the diagnosis, not the fun part. Here's the good news. The good news is Jesus paid our debt. He paid the debt. The gospel is God's attempt to reach man. For all of man's stretching and trying to reach him. The gospel is God's attempt to reach man. Romans 5, 8 says, But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us. While we were still sinners. We couldn't do it. There's nothing we could have done 
to even come close. It would be laughable. The scripture declares the totality of your righteousness is like a pile of filthy rags. Nothing. And yet God in his mercy, instead of just pouring out wrath, which we all deserved, people crying out for justice. I'm thinking, man, you don't want justice. Nobody wants justice. If it was all justice, we'd all be in hell right now. Let's just be real. But instead, he gives us grace, mercy. And I understand there are some philosophical questions that arise. Like, well, okay, is God then subject to the law of justice? Well, no, he is justice. So there, there's some you know, wrestling we can do with this, and there's nothing that hasn't been addressed before that we could talk about. But really, it's simple. Jesus came and lived the life you couldn't to pay a debt that you couldn't. And in living that life, he became the perfect substitute, perfection, absolute perfection. Think about those times we sin just in little comments we make, just in the little lies we tell, the thoughts that we allow to linger just a little too long. Jesus didn't even sin in that sense. Yet with all the temptation, he was tired sometimes too. You ever talk to someone when they're tired? Oh, forget it. You want to know someone's flesh, keep them up really late. <laughs> and then see how they respond the next morning to things. Jesus was tired. Jesus dealt with difficult people too. Jesus was misunderstood. Jesus had people twist his words. It in all of this, he didn't sin. And, and that, that perfection demonstrated on the cross. So, so the cross is the best that God has to offer. Meeting the worst that man has to offer. Converging together in one person, the Christ, the substitute, the sacrifice, the payment. So what do we do? Well, that's the diagnosis, the cure. So what's the response? How, how, do, you, how do you receive a free gift? How, what, what must you do? And, and, and why do you have to do anything if it's by faith? I'm going to show you this. Here's what you can explain. Salvation is by faith, people of God. Please be careful of these three, I'll give you these real quickly. These three false gospels, the sin-permitting gospel. This is the gospel that says you can live whatever way you want, and no matter what, you'll still go to heaven. And then the workspace gospel. This is the gospel that implies you can live whatever way you want, and no matter what, you'll still go to hell. Because the workspace gospel commands not only that you believe initially, but then that you take over the works for the rest of your life, making sure to do enough good to keep your salvation. You couldn't do enough good to earn your salvation. You certainly can't do enough good to keep it, I promise you. And the workspace gospel, you know you believe it if you're constantly questioning if you've lost your salvation. The prosperity gospel, also, which is 
teaching people, come to Jesus, it's all health, wealth, happiness, no challenges ever, nothing. And there's a lot of people who get accused of preaching the prosperity gospel who actually don't. They teach prosperity, and then they teach the real gospel, prosperity being a biblical principle. And sometimes people conflate the two. So if they hear like a certain word, oh, he said prosper, oh, he said sow, oh, he said reap, oh, he said money. Okay, that's a doctrine that has to do with finances. And we all can disagree on finances so long as we agree on the gospel. Most of these people who you hear accused of preaching the, quote, prosperity gospel are actually teaching the true gospel and additionally, not to say you have to believe this to be saved, just also believe that God blesses the generous. Is that so wicked? And so we have to be careful, again, of judging one another there. But, but here we see that salvation is by faith. It's all by faith. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 10 this will be my final point, so I'll take some time on this. But God is so rich, and, and look at me for a second. I, I, you know what's, 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 what, what, what astounds me? And I'm not, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying this to criticize anyone. I'm saying this because I want to get your attention now. You know, most believers don't know why they're saved or how it works. And, and the reason I tell you this is not to shame anyone I'm not trying to criticize you. I say this because it's possible that you're living in mental anguish that's unnecessary because you don't understand that faith is what brings salvation. So I'm going to show you something that's going to be absolutely liberating for some because I know it was liberating for me. I had a very religious approach to God uh, before he corrected that in me through the scripture. Watch this, Ephesians, 4, Ephesians 2, 4 through 10. But God is so rich in mercy and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. So God can point to us in all future ages as an example of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness toward us as shown in all he has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. Now watch this, verse eight, this is so key. God saved you by his grace when you believed. Past tense. God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done. So none of us can boast about it. For we are God's masterpiece. In other words, we're his project. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. So how are we saved? How exactly does this work? I like to call Jesus the surgeon of the soul. If you go in for a procedure... You just have to rest. You're not up the night before in the textbooks and in the biology books and, and, and the medical books and studying human anatomy and trying to make sure that you know everything that you need to know for that surgery that you have to go through. You probably don't even know what they're doing. You go under the knife, you're doing one thing. You're getting yourself on the table. You're surrendering. 
Now, the Bible says we're saved by grace through faith, not by works. And in doing that, in wording it in such a way, the scripture is making a clear distinction between faith and works. In other words, by God's definition, faith is not a work. Believing is not a work. The works that it's distinguishing itself from through the scripture is what we would list as like the, the, the right things to do as a Christian. Now we have to be careful with this because I am not saying that you can just live however you want without consequence. What I am saying is that if you're truly saved, it's by faith alone. You cannot earn it. And this really is the good news because it's simple enough and we still mess it up. It's simple enough and we still don't always fully understand it. He's the surgeon of the soul. All I did was offer myself to him and say, you can do it. Now God can override free will at any time. He's sovereign, but he so chooses to work with the free will of man. That's just the way he's chosen to do it. And it's by believing. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. January 6, 2017, I wrote a blog that I think was plagiarized. We won't get into the details about that. <laughs> January 6, I always say the date because I don't want any, there's, a, there's another teaching out there that uses this. I'm like, uh, well, I'm not, maybe, I'll give the benefit of the doubt they came up with it too, but I don't want anyone to think I'm plagiarizing it either. So that's the only reason I say it. But I want you to picture salvation like a tree. Okay? And here's how most believers picture that tree. They see the tree bearing fruit, and, and that fruit is salvation, eternity with God, you know, new, a, a new life. And then they look at the roots, and they think that the roots of that tree are all the good things that we do. Not the case. Not the case. It's just the opposite. In fact, it's completely different, I should say. The roots are not good works. The roots are simply, I believe. And from that faith is grown the tree of salvation. And that tree produces the fruit of good works. You don't do good works to be saved. You do good works because you are saved. I, I, I'm not performing. I'm not performing because I want God to save me. I'm performing because I'm so thankful that he has. And, and it's, it's, it's knowing that security, that, that certainty, that if I just believe, in other words, Jesus, okay, my soul is nothing to play games with. And I am trusting that you are who you say you are. And I'm putting my soul, think about what we're staking on Jesus, our eternal soul. That's a big deal. And we're saying, I'm banking on what you, I'm going to take you up on that offer. And so what does God do in response? That's where he takes over. Lord, I believe this. And from there, he does the rest. In fact, he had a part in inspiring that faith in the first place. That's a whole different teaching. But you know, from there, he begins to do the work. And now when I truly believe, that genuine faith begins to transform my nature. One final illustration and then we'll 
close it here. So, again, diagnosis, the presentation of the cure, and then asking for the response. And they don't need to come up yet, Steve. I'll, I'll, I'll let you know. Actually, I'll do this, and then one more thing I want to say. Because I just remembered, some of you are praying for people who are, are, are stubborn, and they're not, they're not coming to the Lord. I'm going to tell you how to deal with that in just a moment. So imagine that before you is a door, and you walk through this one door, shutting the door behind you. Now you're in a hallway, long hallway stretched out. You walk all the way down the hall, and at the other end is another door. That's how I want you to picture your walk with the Lord. This first door that you walk through is justification. Say justification. Justification is your position. It's, it's a verdict that has been reached in heaven. I've been freely justified by faith. I believe, now I'm justified. So I'm positioned now as innocent. That, that's a great start, I'll tell you that right now. Okay. Now, here's where the work begins. This long hallway is sanctification. Sanctification is not a position, it's a process. So no matter where I am in the hallway, let's say some days, like, okay, let's say you didn't sleep well, so the next day you kind of do a couple steps back. And then you're, you're in the Word, you're reading the Bible, you're praying, you're, you're fellowshipping, and you start to see some progress. Sometimes forwards, sometimes backwards. But no matter where you are in this hallway, thank God the door has been shut. Now let me tell you, one of two people that will respond, or two, two different types of people respond to this. A true believer responds to this and says, okay, I can do this then. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to work at this. A non-believer says, oh, sweet, I can do whatever I want. And judging by how you respond will reveal to you where your heart actually is. So a true believer with true faith who truly believes that Jesus is the Son of God, that they've been saved from their sins, they're not going to be going, oh, I'm free to move around the hall however I want. A true believer is going to say, thank you, Lord, for my position. Now help me in the process. <laughs> this final door is glorification. And that is God's promise. That is perfection. You're not, you're not there yet, neither am I. Trust me, you're probably further along the hallway than me. You may say, what? And I'm saying, yeah, probably. And we're, no matter where we are, we're all different areas. And so, so, so a workspace gospel is going to imagine that every time you sin, you step behind the door. And you got to say a special prayer to come back in. This is workspaced. Oh, I, I, I messed up. Oh, now I'm outside the door. And if I die right now before I say that special prayer, I'm going to go to hell. Works-based. So why people ask questions like, well, if I, if I, like this scenario that people bring up, they say you're driving down the street, you look at a woman of lust, you get in a wreck, instantly killed. What happens? <laughs> well, well, if you didn't have a chance to repent, you go to hell. Wait a minute. So was it? Christ's sacrifice that saved me or was it good timing that saved me? 
So, so, so we, what would we do? With workspace, this is it. Oh, I sinned again. Okay. And this is what we think, this workspace, and this is why people who have that mindset can never get past their sin. Because they're still playing with that first door, thinking that's where it matters, not realizing that's fine. You're good. Just keep going. I can keep moving. Pushing on toward that prize. Now, you explain that way of salvation, and that's a lot easier to do than, hey, you have to obey all these rules, otherwise you're going to hell. But you could see how it could also be confused for people saying, well, are you saying they can sin however they want? No. no a true believer wouldn't want to do that anyway. So, how do you deal with, and then the worship team can come, I'm going to explain this final point to you. Is this blessing anyone this morning? I, I know it was a little little technical this morning. We got into some teaching. I hope they recorded it now. I might go, okay. Because I know someone's going to be asking me for the notes, and I don't have... They're not really notes. They're scriptures. So I would just hand you scriptures, which is not bad, I guess. But that's better to... You guys recorded it, the audio? Okay, good. I think that's something you should listen to again. Get it in your spirit. Really understand. Because otherwise, you're going to either be tormented, or you're going to be sinful, and you don't want either. But, 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 but let's talk about these people real briefly who, who you, you've, you've ministered to and they're just not budging. Let me say something that's going to break your heart but also liberate you. There's nothing more you can really do but pray. Listen, listen. And when you pray, don't confuse worrying for praying. I know this is not... I, 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 this is, I'm trying to say this succinctly so it's very hard to add the caveats, but... But, but, but please understand, you're not the Savior. You're not the Holy Spirit. And, and it may break your heart. And I know this is, again, I've got a short amount of time now, but I'm saying this because I want you to be free. And I want them to experience salvation. I'm going to show you what to do with them right now. You, 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 you do realize that, that sometimes we can get in the way when we try to play the Holy Spirit. You, you, you present the gospel you show them love. Continue to pray. Yes. Please don't stop and don't hear what I'm not saying. Yes, you continue to pray. Yes, you continue to love them. Yes, you continue to, to, to anoint whatever they own with oil. That's what I would do with unsaved love and just sneak it in there. I'm serious. Yes, you continue to, to, to show them the word when the opportunities present themselves. But, but, but you have got to stop carrying their decision as if it's yours. Because let me, let me show you something. This is, this is how the enemy works. This is going to be liberating for someone. You're, you're praying for them. You're loving them. And then here's the problem. You're wearing, oh my gosh, I really feel this so strong for someone in here. You are wearing the tension of their poor decisions so that when you interact with them, you're bleeding all over them. When they interact with you now, it's not joy. It's not love. It's not peace. They sense the tension around you when, they, when you're around them because of how they're choosing to live. And, and you're just, just if, if all you're doing is nagging them, if all you're doing is, is letting them feel the tension, the weight, oh, my heart is aching for and that's all they're ever getting, they're not going to want to come around. And, and we push them further when we try to play the Holy Spirit. Once you've presented the message, the blood is off your hands. 
and, 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 and some of you are going to find that hard because you, sometimes trying to control things gives us a sense of security, doesn't it? And sometimes worrying gives us a sense of control. But do you realize that by worrying, you're not accomplishing anything? And I know that sounds harsh because you love them, but, but I'm trying to tell you how to really win them. You're worrying, and so you're getting all tangled up in your emotions so that your every interaction with them is tense, and it's, it's confrontational, and it's causing all sorts of issues. When, when they come around you, it should be the love of Jesus, the love of the Spirit, the peace, the joy, to where they're going, my goodness, I don't have that. You come at them with the list, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. this is why you're wrong, this is why you're sending Look, you gave them the diagnosis again and again and again. It's time to start showing the results of the cure. I'm not saying there's never a time to confront sin. There are times. I'm not saying there aren't open doors and opportunities to share the message. Look for those. But after a certain point with certain individuals, you've got to stop carrying it to where it's affecting your walk with God. And it's almost like you built an identity around them. I'm the praying mother. I'm the praying father. I, and your whole identity is now on the suffering prayer warrior. I'm, I know I know I'm going to be stepping on some toes, but, 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 but see, this, 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 it's, it's killing your spiritual life. Yes, carry the burden for the lost. Yes, care for them. Yes, love them. Yes, it's okay that your heart aches for them. But to base everything around that is only going to push them further. What you need to do is become more like Jesus. And you're not going to become more like Jesus by worrying. You're not going to become more like Jesus by being more tense and wrapped up in your emotions. You wear that love. You wear that peace. You wear that joy so that when they come around you, that's a magnet for the gospel message. So when, when, when they're out in the world and they're just being beaten up, tossed side by side because of their sin, they know there's a place. There's only one place I can go that I feel peace. There's only one place. When, when they're walking up to your door, they're not sighing because they're about to get beaten up. They're not sighing because it's going to be an argument. They're, they're walking up going... I'm, I'm going to get some relief for a little bit even. And then God gives you open doors, opportunities. Now again, there are lots of different nuances to this and explanations for different angles. But that's at the very basic, that's the, the most succinct way I can put it, is stop, start praying, stop worrying. Stop nagging, start loving. You want to be a better witness for Jesus. And you want to be someone who's a soul winner. And you need help with explaining these. Or you need help with walking in this. And you're wanting the Holy Spirit's help. It's a simple altar call. You say, Holy Spirit, help me be a soul winner to my loved ones. Then just come stand at this altar. Thanks so much for listening to this message from Reach Church Paramount. To stay connected with us, follow us on Instagram or Facebook at Reach Paramount. To give and support this podcast and ministry, visit our website at reachparamount.com give.